This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis, a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. In today's episode, we are stepping out of the studio and onto the stage for a live event recording. New Memphis recently hosted Celebrate What's Right, Risky Business, which featured a panel discussion with some of the city's most notable tech entrepreneurs. The conversation, which we'll be playing here today, explores what makes Memphis the ideal city for making big ideas a big reality, while uncovering how the city's long-standing entrepreneurial spirit is moving our whole community forward. Let's get into it. My name is Anna Ellis. I'm the president and CEO of New Memphis. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time at one of our luncheons, we host a series of events called Celebrate What's Right. It's all there in the name where we are trying to isolate things in the city that we can authentically celebrate, the people, the projects, the organizations that are moving the city forward. I'm absolutely delighted about our topic today. I was telling Jessica earlier, Jessica Tavo at Epicenter, uh, that um, I really wanted to listen on this conversation because I've heard about all of the exciting things that are happening in the entrepreneurial space, but I don't understand them. <laughs> so. I'm very happy to have somebody explain it to me today. Um, I'm going to start by thanking Jessica and Epicenter and your whole team. Um, we really couldn't do these events without smart subject matter experts like Epicenter who bring these conversations together. To all of our panelists, thank you. And to each of you for being here. So appreciative. Um, New Memphis, if you are not familiar, is a nonprofit. We are focused on developing, activating, and retaining talent in the city. So as part of that work, we want to make sure that everybody is aware of what is making Memphis a livable and lovable place, that we are all aware of uh, how Memphis is a city on the rise, how we can all be a part of building that future for the better. Um, I have a few housekeeping things that I'll be uh, in trouble if I do not say. Um, if you are here today, you are often here as a guest, but we hope that this work has value to you. And if it does, we suggest that you make a donation to New Memphis. Again, we are a nonprofit by using the place cards at your seat. And um, that's a great way for us to continue to know that you care about this programming and we'll continue it forward. And we could not do this programming without our incredible sponsors. Thank you so much to First Horizon. They have been a partner on these events for over 10 years. So I know you guys understand this work and care deeply about it. So thank you so much. Um, also to our great friends at Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're, oh, there you are. <laughs> Where did they go? They're right in front of me. Um, to Kevin, your team, you guys are excellent. Thank you so much for helping make this work possible. Um, and then our, there we are. I, I, I'm always disoriented at this part of the day. Duncan Williams Asset Management, thank you guys so much again for helping make this event possible. Tell them thank you for your lunch. Thank you for your seat. Um, we're so thrilled to have everybody here. Um, before we get into, again, this juicy topic, I want to bring up Tanya Hart. She is both a New Memphis trustee, um, but is also uh, representing First Horizon today. So uh, welcome her to the stage. Hi. 
Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, we have a great crowd this afternoon in spite of the weather. So I want to thank everybody for making an effort to come out for this important topic. As um, Anna mentioned, I'm Tanya Hart, and I'm the Chief Human Resources Officer for First Horizon Bank. In addition to that, my day job, I'm also a trustee with New Memphis. So I'm really excited about that. You know, at First Horizon, um, we're absolutely thrilled to be able to celebrate what's right. And as she mentioned, in partnership with Duncan Williams, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and other organizations. And so we're excited to be here today and to hold a conversation really about entrepreneurship and realistically what can happen with this in our Memphis community. You know, we at First Horizon have had many um, graduates of the program through New Memphis. And, you know, we've gotten an opportunity to truly see firsthand the impact and um, the, the, the work that's really being done. So we're really proud of that. It's very thoughtful as it relates to partnership with the city of Memphis. And so we're really excited to be your partner. And so now I would like to introduce today's moderator, Jessica Tavo. Um, she currently serves, as Anna said, as president and CEO of Epicenter, which we all have a lot of experience with. And as you know, this organization is really designed to support entrepreneurship in the Memphis area. So join me this afternoon in welcoming Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's see, make sure, can you hear me? Is it on? Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, we really appreciate you coming to talk about entrepreneurship in Memphis. I can't wait to introduce our panel, but I just want to give a little bit of an introduction to the topic, as Anna said. Um, you know, entrepreneurship can be a big word. It can mean a lot of different things to different people, but it really comes down to our citizens uh, taking the risk to do something new and to build businesses around new ideas, um, solving problems in new ways, and uh, moving those ideas forward. So in Memphis, we we celebrate many types of entrepreneurial enterprises, from solo founders to uh, you know products and stores in our neighborhoods to smaller businesses trying to get contracts from bigger businesses, and to high-tech businesses really disrupting marketplaces. Um, and we need all of those entrepreneurial firms uh, thriving and healthy here in Memphis to have a successful and growing economy. But today we're really going to narrow down our conversation um, into one area of entrepreneurship and that's tech startups or those that are venture-backed. We're going to get into what that means. Um, in Memphis, uh, this may be a, uh, maybe a less visible part of our ecosystem, and we're trying to change that and maybe demystify our startup community a little bit. Um, so the Center for American Entrepreneurship really highlights the reasons why we should care about this class of business. The startups inject the economy with new, higher productivity firms and increased competition again, or, uh, you know, among existing firms. They spur innovation. Um, they're really responsible for commercializing new technology and creating new markets or disrupting existing markets. And they create jobs. These new young firms are, are really responsible for creating new net jobs in the American economy. So we know that investment in high-tech, high-growth uh, startups create an exponential return um, with local economies. And entrepreneurs actually, they historically invest a lot 
more back into our, our communities as well. Um, so it's mutually beneficial. You know, with these economic engines, um, there are more knowledge-based job opportunities. Um, there are more opportunities for our young citizens to see thriving entrepreneurs in our hometown. They solve technology challenges for local corporations and create additional marketplaces. And they raise the profile of our community nationally um, through their stories and, their th and through their innovations. Um, and I'll say too that history has taught us that through economic downturns, maybe through mass tech layoffs, there are opportunities. This is where new businesses start. And as a community, we can really be prepared to welcome, to grow those, um, those startups that come out of, of those circumstances. Um, we also have a lot to offer in human capital. Um, we have a lot of work to do in this area, but through outreach and intention, our entrepreneurial community really reflects our, our community in Memphis. And we, we, it mirrors our, our, the demographics of our community. And we know that racial and gender diverse, diversity is rare in venture ecosystems, um, but data continues to show this diversity in startup management yields more successful companies and more economic return. So just to, to close out this introduction, you know, innovation ecosystems, the support system that su supports these startups, it, they take years to develop. And the good news is that we've made a lot of progress in this area. Um, we're, we're, our ecosystem is newer than, than other markets, frankly. Um, but we've made a lot of progress in scaling a network of partners and resources. Many of you are in the room today. Um, from youth entrepreneurial organizations to connections into the school system to academic researchers to corporate community and the money or the capital to start and grow these firms. It takes all of us to support these startup businesses um, and, and uh, move forward. And we certainly also have gaps in this, in this young ecosystem, particularly around capital. And we're not unique to that as a mid-sized market. Um, it, you know, mid-sized markets like Memphis um, have typically have uh, gaps in access to capital. And um, nationally, women and founders of color are dis disproportionately underinvested in this area um, compared to their white male counterparts. And while our local statistics are slightly higher, we, we also have a lot of work to do in that area. And it's a partic particular barrier in our community. Um, but our progress in, in creating this innovation ecosystem and supporting startups and partners that we're going to talk to today is really something to celebrate. And I'm really excited. Um, to introduce the panel to you today. These are folks that are really going to talk about what resources are available here, what work we've done, help demystify this area a little bit, and um, include what's working and what challenges we can all work together to solve. So let's get started and get to the panel. Um, I want to introduce uh, to my to your, my right, your left, my um, Erica Plybier, uh, founder and CEO at MedHall. We have Brandon Harris, principal at Ridgeline. Ido Sarig, who's the managing director of the Memphis hub of the Alchemist Accelerator, and Suzanne Drumwright, who is director of operations at Dextrous Robotics. So we're just gonna we're gonna get into the conversation. I have some some direct questions, but the panel knows that they can jump in and, and answer questions as we go along. And and the first one really is for for Brandon. So um, Brandon, uh, Ridgeline is a newer venture capital firm in Memphis, um, and we really want to know more about why Ridgeline has established an office here, kind of what you're what you're up to here. But first, for the audience, can you can you make some definitions? Can you define what is venture capital? And what makes what makes a business venture backed? Um, so venture capital. Oh yeah. So venture capital was originally thought of as a short term for adventure capital because you're joining an entrepreneur at the 
the, the very early stages of innovation, the very early stages of building their company, and so you're really going on an adventure with them. Um, the thing that separates, though, a, a tech startup or a, VC, you know, a venture-backable startup from a small business is simply one word, and it's growth. Right? And when you're a venture capitalist, we're expected to invest in companies that will eventually become billion-dollar companies really within 10 years. That's what a, you've heard the term unicorn is a company that was started, you know, and it started within 10 years. It became a billion-dollar company, and that's what makes a unicorn. Um, but the origins of, of venture capital, which are even more interesting, is most people don't know is that the first venture firm was actually started in 1946. After World War II, you had all these scientists who had been basically building this really innovative technology funded by the military. And there was a corporation called the American Research and Development Corporation, which was actually started by some scientists and professors at MIT and Harvard. Uh, actually had some successful wins, but they turned it into a public company, which if you know now, no venture capital firm would ever become a public corporation because there's no way for you to move quickly enough or be lean enough to make the right you know, opportunities. So eventually, around 1955, um, American Research and Development Corporation went under, but later you actually had scientists from MIT who wanted to start their own company. They couldn't find funding in the Northeast because all the really stuffy investment bankers in the Northeast wanted to give them loans, wouldn't allow them to have like equity-free funding. So they moved to San Francisco. And what's important is that most funding before venture capital was invented came from rich families who wanted to give you loans. And if you're a scientist trying to build a technology that won't be ready for three or four years, you're not going to have any revenue to pay those loans. And so it wasn't until people moved to the West Coast and new you know, funding mechanisms were created around this idea that you know, we can fund companies that won't make revenues for the first year, two years, maybe even five years, but when you bring it to market, it'll be so innovative, it'll be 10 times better at least than whatever competitor is out there that you'll see that growth that'll justify the investment and give you better returns than what you would get from the stock market. So, you know, adventure, cap venture capital, short for adventure capital, and just understanding that, you know, for breakthrough technologies, you have to have basically like a bit of a waiting period and have to you know, take a bit of a bigger risk, right? Because if that innovation doesn't work, you lose that money. But if it does, it does work out as you expect, those returns are going to pay for themselves and that company will go to the moon. And so that's, that's the idea. And the first company that really became, I, I think, venture backable in, in, the, in the Bay and why it's called Silicon Valley was Fairchild Semiconductor. And if we talk now, there's all this talk about semiconductor shortages. And so history always comes back. But that was really the, the origins. And that's why it's called Silicon Valley, because the first big company made their semiconductors out of silicon. So, yeah. so what, what about Ridgeline? So y'all are here. What are you up to? And, and why Memphis for your, for your next uh, headquarters? Most people don't know that, you know, I think more commercial freight moves through Memphis than any other city in the country, which makes us, you know, one of the supply chain tech hubs of the world, right? And so at Ridgeline, we only invest in enterprise technology. And what we say, we focus on foundational industries. And as we all saw in COVID, supply chain is a foundational industry. And there's not really a VC that's in a supply chain hub like Memphis. So we looked at this as an opportunity to, one, highlight what's already going down, going down here with FedEx, all the 3PLs and logistic companies that are here, but also to kind of supercharge it and expose more Memphians to the fact that this is a tech hub and one of the most important you know, sectors in the world, and we can redefine it 
right, in a time where people really need that by leveraging new technologies, you know, artificial intelligence, robotics, automation. And so Memphis seemed like a great place. I'm a Memphis native, so I actually was living in D.C. And, and Ridgeline brought me back here, and I was super excited about that because I started to start up here and had to leave. And so the idea of being able to come back here and have another entity that can fund entrepreneurs and expose them to what the standard is for a world-class founder was extremely um, attractive to me. So just here, just highlighting what was already happening in Memphis and just trying to take it to another level. Thanks. Erica, so you're a founder of MedHall. Um, you know, you're working on uh, really solving gaps in reliable transportation. Can you talk a little bit about how transportation intersects with, with the health of our citizens and our, our community and, and how MedHall is bridging that gap through, through your startup? Sure, thank you. I'm happy to talk about that. So transportation is actually one of the top social determinants of health. And for my non-healthcare folks in the room, social determinants of health are essentially social barriers that impact a patient's access to care. So food, transportation, housing are typically the top three uh, social determinants. Um, and what MedHall typically does, uh, well, first, uh, I guess I'll share a little bit more about the company, uh, shameless plug. Uh, so our company, we're innovating medical transportation, non-emergency medical transportation for patients with complex needs. So these are patients who are low income, elderly, disabled, and patients in semi-rural communities. Uh, we work a lot with chronically ill patients, like patients who have cancer, uh, type 2 diabetes, patients who have kidney failure and, and need to go to dialysis. And where we see transportation really being the most impactful is for these patients who have these chronic illnesses but don't have either don't have transportation at all uh, may live in a city where the public transportation infrastructure is not as strong uh, and so what we were seeing in markets that looked like Memphis but even Atlanta New Orleans uh, Birmingham etc was that we had these large groups of patients who were either lower income or had these chronic illnesses, but didn't necessarily have the transportation resources, or the transportation resources were so antiquated, meaning that there was no digital platform to find and book the transportation. Um, the, the transportation needed to be booked days in advance, so two to three days in advance, particularly for Medicaid patients, and we wanted to figure out how we could dismantle that. And so it's, it's been a great journey so far. Founded the company in 2017, formally launched in 2019. We currently operate across about 10 states now. Um, still based in, in Tennessee, uh, our team is fully remote. We have a team about, of about 11 folks. And, um, and yeah, it, it's been a, a great city to, to grow our company. Thank you. Ido. I think you're the newest Memphian on, on the stage, so welcome. Um, you know, we're, we're talking today a little bit about available resources in, in the Memphis ecosystem, and certainly the new Memphis hub of Alchemist Accelerator, and Epicenter is proud to be a partner in that, is one of those resources. But I'd um, love to hear from you why Memphis for the Memphis hub, but also can you define what exactly an accelerator is and, and how that helps startups get off the ground? Sure, that might be. All right, that might be a good place to start. Um, an accelerator is an educational program that, as its name implies, helps early stage startups accelerate their time to market, get to market sooner in a more professional, more uh, fully uh, thought out way. The goal of an accelerator program is to make those companies venture backable. Um, so in terms of where we sit in the value chain, we would typically come after the idea stage where a couple of entrepreneurs get together and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we did this to solve 
that problem and maybe put together a little uh, slide presentation describing their idea and maybe they go into some sort of an incubator to think through their process. We come right after that, but before folks like Ridgeline who then provide the venture capital. Our program is uh, an intensive one that provides guidance, mentorship, coaching from people who have done it before themselves. They were previously successful entrepreneurs or they might have been uh, hands-on operators at larger organizations with experience in the various functional domains that are critical to a startup success like marketing, sales, engineering, and so on. Um, and the program culminates in a demo day. The demo day is the highlight of the, the, the program. It brings together these uh, participating companies, the class that runs for about six months, and puts them in front of investors like Ridgeline, hopefully with a great deck that they put together, a fully thought out business model and go-to-market strategy, evidence of traction, so that at the end of their demos, they will get checks from those VCs. And just in terms of the Alchemist Accelerator, the way we like to measure ourselves, since this is the goal of the program to make these companies venture backable. We measure how many of our graduates are able to raise venture capital at the end of the program. And we are averaging more than 52% of our graduates are able to raise money within 12 months of graduating. As far as why Memphis, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Brandon said because um, they are also our partners who made us aware of this opportunity together with Epicenter. Um, it is true that Memphis is a hub of logistics and supply chain activity. Um, and what we, when we made our pitch to Epicenter about why we should be the partners, we shared an anecdote, which I believe is only one of many that illustrates this point. The talent pool in places like Silicon Valley or maybe the uh, Boston, Cambridge area is very, very deep. If you're looking to build any sort of high-tech product, you can go in Silicon Valley or in the Boston area and find a software engineer that will build the software for you, a hardware engineer that will put together the required hardware systems, and you will build a product. But is it the right product? And to know if that's the right product or not, you actually need to talk to prospects and to customers. And that domain expertise does not exist for the most part in Silicon Valley or in Boston. And the anecdote that we shared is that in one of our previous classes, we had a Seattle-based company that was building drones for last mile delivery. Uh, a drone that would put a package on your doorstep instead of having it to come through a, a FedEx truck or an Amazon truck. Um, there's no problem to find people who would write the control system for that drone in Silicon Valley. There's no problem to find people who will take uh, either build from scratch or take custom off-the-shelf hardware to build the, the, uh, the servos and the motors to control the drone. But are they building the right drone? Should this drone be able to carry five-pound packages or 50-pound packages? What are the FAA regulations related to drone uh, travel in, in regulated airspace? Though that expertise, the answers to those questions, they don't exist in Silicon Valley. They exist here. Who knows the answer to that? Probably a guy at FedEx who's been working on similar drone delivery systems for the past five or 10 years. And you want to be able to reside close to them 
to ask those questions and get the answers. And that's the pitch that we made. Um, I think part of that is exactly the same story that Brandon has. Thank you. Well, speaking of uh, technology that is on the cutting edge, <laughs> Suzanne, uh, Dexter's Robotics certainly um, is, is on that cutting edge. And can you, can you describe your robot and what, what challenges it solves? And then also just the opportunity for robots, robotics in Memphis and maybe, the, maybe also the impact on, on jobs or job opportunities? Sure. Thank you for having me today. And uh, yeah, so we are building a robot that will empty uh, shipping containers uh, with a chopstick-like grippers. Right now, what you see on the market is suction that has a lot of challenges with uh, weight and type of material. So uh, it's a little bit of a harder engineering problem to solve, which um, I'm not an engineer, so I don't have to solve that problem. But um, the, my, our team has been wonderful in that research and making that happen. And um, we're in Memphis because just, just as they said, uh, this is where we can do testing with customers. We can talk to them, see what they need, see what the warehouses look like, and um, what challenges we'll face as we're building uh, our custom software and hardware. And what about, what about job opportunities in robotics? That seems to be sort of a hot topic. What, what's your take on that in, in so, terms of... Yeah, a lot of people get concerned, well, are you taking jobs away from people who are emptying shipping containers? And I think most people from Memphis know, like, that's a terrible job. It's, uh, nobody wants it. You get hurt, and the, uh, there's a severe labor shortage issue that everybody in this job or in this uh, market faces. So, um, the job changes to a skilled one. Of uh, the operator will push a button, the robot unloads the shipping containers with the chopstick, and then they move on to the next. So, you're giving those people the opportunity for a skilled job instead of just one where they're trading their physical health and well-being. Um, and also we have fabricators for the robot, mechanics for the robot, software engineers. So there's uh, just creating more opportunities for those types of position here. And um, I was at the material handling conference a couple weeks ago, and I would say 90% of what is there is robotics. So Memphis seems like, why shouldn't all the companies be here doing that. I mean, where you have all the logistics, so it just seems like such a natural fit for that to be happening in here. Thank you. Brandon, we're talking a lot about logistics technology. I know we talked about health technology. Ridgeline, part of your portfolio is in climate technology. Why is it important for, for you to invest in that? And what, you know, why is that important to Memphis and, and our city here? About 85% of global emissions come from supply chains. So moving goods here to there, country to country, city to city, that's actually the cause of a lot of our emissions. And in fact, they're called scope three emissions, but they're the hardest emissions for corporations to abate. And so that's why we care about it from a supply chain perspective. And then what people also don't know about Memphis, you know, especially if you're outside from here, is the agricultural aspect. And for farmers, there's a huge opportunity right now in something called soil carbon. So people are talking about capturing carbon, removing it from the air. Soils are our largest carbon sink, which means that's the best place to put the soil. And there are ways to get our farmers who, I'm sure you hear about it all the time, probably have family members who work in the industry. They're often you know, fighting for margins every single dollar. And so there's an opportunity there to give agricultural boost to the region and to the, to the country, but also help lowering those emissions. And as you know, companies move to Europe, you know, 
there's a lot of regulations that are already happening. They're trying to put them here in the U.S. They're already happening overseas. They're going to cost you know enterprises to pay exorbitant fees to mitigate these emissions. And so for us, finding ways to basically, as we call, say, decarbonize the enterprise, right? And I think there are also a lot of opportunities to lower our carbon emissions while also creating more efficient business tools and practices, right? So can we, you know, lower the amount of electricity we need while still allowing things to work properly, right? Can we move goods even faster with less emissions? And so there are a lot of smart people building some really interesting technology, and we invested in a company called Ion that does carbon removal. And most people don't know this, but most of, most of FedEx's emissions come from jet fuel. You use ethanol to create jet fuel. A key ingredient in ethanol is corn. So if I'm growing corn for ethanol and, you know, the company we work with as a soil amendment, you put on the soil, it enriches the soil and increases yields, but it also takes out like a ton of carbon out the air for every ton that's applied. And you apply one ton per acre. So the scale on it means, you know, we've, re we've reduced the carbon intensity of FedEx's jet fuel, which has then also lowered their emissions, you know, overall. And so just finding innovative ways to do that, but also, you know, technologies that can help the climate, but also, again, like help farmers increase their yield and have that, that business value. Great. For, this is for Erica and, and Suzanne and whoever wants to go first. But, you know, how we have a lot of business leaders in, in the audience. How can corporations interact with the startup ecosystem? And, I mean, we talked about corporations here a little bit. And what, what are some mutual benefits to that? You know, how, what is an ideal relationship um, with the startup ecosystem and corporations look like? I'm happy to start. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Um, so it's really helpful if a corporation has a, a problem that maybe they can't prioritize solving um, or they need to solve pretty quickly, but a lot of times corporations can't move that quickly or may not be able to move that quickly or iterate um, as quickly as a startup company would be able to. And in addition, on the flip side of that, a startup company, which is typically very nimble, teams are typically pretty small, they can try things very quickly. They can build a new product or a new feature within a couple days versus a corporation, it may take months. Um, so there's, there's definitely mutual benefits for, for both. Uh, we've had quite a few corporate partners um, as both investors and as customers, early customers. And what it, did, what it did for us was first, it gave us the credibility that we needed as an early stage startup. Uh, that is one of the things that um, really helps early stage companies is getting that credibility. As a, as a very small company walking up to a potential customer and we're only like a team of like three or four, they're not gonna work with you. But if, if you have had the backing or the partnership of like a FedEx or St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, these organizations are much more likely to consider these organizations. As well as the corporate partners, they're able to, um, they're able to iterate a lot, a lot faster. Um, and it's a lot less costly than it would be by implementing um, a, a potential feature or a potential team, launching a brand new team internally, their recruiting costs, their employee costs, that they can um, mitigate by working with a potential startup company. Yeah, I would say there's a few ways. Um, one is like, I guess like when we were in our seed round funding um, to have a letter of intent from a business that says, yes, we're desperate for this, we need help. Uh, this is definitely some technology we're interested in. So we can show investors, we have support from uh, customers. 
And then as we grow and have um, more to show, to have, uh, we've seen some companies kind of, just as Erica's point, like they don't typically move as fast as startups have to because we have to meet milestones due to our funding. Um, we've seen companies organize teams internally that are actually scouting and assessing uh, technology startups that make sense for them. So we're able to talk to them um, and they can give us input on what they need and um, we can start that contract phase earlier before we have the product ready to go. That helps make sure it's exactly what they need and uh, they're able to implement the technology a lot sooner than if we start the contract phase when it's ready for deployment because that takes five or six months where we're learning as we go. So that's, that's been the most helpful thing, I think. And I'm, I'm glad to be seeing that trend and I hope that continues. Great. And I also, yeah, can sure, I add something please. else? Yeah. We, our company was actually started uh, because of a competition between, um, or a innovation competition uh, that was held uh, between uh, Epicenter, Memphis Medical District Collaborative, uh, and the anchor medical institutions in the medical district. And what the competition consisted of was the organizations bringing forth their top one to two pain points. And transportation management was one of their top pain points, um, uh, was one of the top pain points of the anchor healthcare institutions, which in our medical district are Regional One, uh, Labonner's Children, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and several others. And so they were looking for an organization that could innovate the way in which they found medical transportation, particularly for patients who had complex needs, so patients who were in wheelchairs, uh, lower income patients, chronically ill patients. And so that was actually the, the impetus for me starting, uh, for me starting MedHall. I probably would not have started the company had it not been for that, that opportunity with uh, Epicenter and M MMDC. Uh, in addition to that, I also had no interest in being an entrepreneur, primarily because I thought it was very stressful. Um, it looked very stressful, and it is. Um, but, but I think with all of the support that organizations like Epicenter provided, it, it kind of provided a safe space for us to just go out there and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. And so uh, having those corporate partnerships, I think, are, are really vital for early stage companies and can be really vital for uh, corporations as well. Thank you. So, Ido, you know, uh, Erica had an idea. Um, despite the risk, despite the stress, uh, there might be some folks in the audience who are, are thinking about converting that idea to business. What, what makes a good idea a great idea? Um, you know, what, what has your experience shown and, um, and why, should they, why should they take that to, to market here in Memphis? Sure, I love that question because I'm very opinionated on this topic. <laughs> and before I tell you what is the difference between a good idea and a great idea or a bad idea, I want to disabuse you of the notion that ideas by themselves are worth something. They are not. Ideas are a dime a dozen. We all have ideas. We get up in the morning, we walk into the shower, we have a great idea. Um, there is a, uh, a well-known Silicon Valley entrepreneur called Dirk uh, Sievers. He's got, uh, if you Google him, you'll see that he's got a famous saying that goes, ideas are just multiples of execution. It's all about the execution. If you've got a so-so idea, but a great execution, that's worth a lot of money. If you've got a um, great idea, but very poor execution, it's worth almost nothing. Um, 
How many people in the audience are Seinfeld fans? Raise your hand. Uh, quite a few. I, I, I myself am a Seinfeld fan. Part of the reason is I think that the genius of Larry David, who created this, the show, is that he was able to take real-life situations and make them into funny episodes by exaggeration and what have you. And I love to say that there's a Seinfeld episode that covers just about every aspect of life. And on this particular topic, there's more than one. It's actually a recurring theme. And as I start telling you this, I'm sure you'll recognize the episode. There's one where Kramer is sitting in Jerry's uh, apartment and he's reading the newspaper and he's telling him, hey look, they're redoing the uh, uh, cloud club. And Jerry says, oh the club club, that's the, uh, the club the Cloud Club, that's that restaurant on the top of the Chrysler building. That's a pretty good idea to renovate it. And Kramer tells him, of course it's a good idea. It's a great idea. It is my idea. I conceived this whole project two years ago. And there's, there's a, a second one where he's all about how Calvin Klein stole his idea for creating a cologne that smells like the beach. And then <laughs> what Jerry tells him about the... Um, Cloud Club is what I'm going to tell you about ideas in general. After Kramer tells him, I conceived this whole project two years ago, he asks him, which part did you actually conceive of? The uh, $200 million that you don't have or the execution capability to carry it out? Um, and one final word on the difference between a good and a bad idea is that um, a bad idea is actually uh, worse than worthless. It is going to cost you money because you're going to spend resources trying to put it into practice. So that's about, you know, the notion of ideas not being worth much by themselves. But getting past that point, what, what makes an idea into a great idea? I think there are three components to it. You have to be solving, uh, and I'm talking here in the context of a venture-backable company, because uh, there are great ideas that are not venture-backable, and that's perfectly fine. But to have a, uh, an idea that is uh, venture-backable, that is uni has unicorn potential, the first thing is you have to be solving a real problem of huge magnitude. It can't be a problem that is a market of a million dollars or $10 million or $100 million because the economics of a venture firm are such that they have to believe that every company that is funded has the potential, at least, to become a billion dollar unicorn, otherwise the economics don't work. Um, so you have to be solving a big, big problem. The second piece uh, that distinguishes good ideas from great ones is you have to be solving either a totally new problem or an existing problem in a different way. And it is far more important that you be doing something different than you be doing something better. Um, and I'll explain that with a few examples. The robot that um, uh, unpacks containers using a chopstick motion, that is solving an existing problem, but in a totally new way. It is not an improvement on an existing suction-based robot that has five times stronger suction and can, or can move at um, 10 times the pace. Those are all better ideas, but they're not different ideas. And the reason why it's important to be more important to be different than to be better, is that when you're playing the better game, you're playing by the rules that the incumbent has already defined. And when you're playing by the rules that the incumbent has defined, you are more likely to lose. It's a much more difficult battle to win. And I'll use another uh, uh, pop culture reference here just because that's my nature. Um, 
There's a scene in uh, the movie uh, uh, Something About Mary uh, where uh, Ben Stiller picks up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker tells him about his great business idea. The idea is, you all know eight minute abs, the exercise video that will give you great abs in just eight minutes of exercise? He's cracked the code on that. He's gonna come up with seven minute abs. <laughs> and, and, you know, fantastic. I mean, he's, he's telling you, if you've got, you're going to the store and you've got eight-minute abs on one shelf and seven-minute abs on the other, what are you going to choose? Of course you're going to choose seven-minute abs. And then Ben Stiller tells him, well, that, that's great, but what if then somebody comes up with six-minute abs? Um, and that's the better game in a nutshell, right? If you're playing the better game in a nutshell, the company that came up with eight-minute abs, they're more likely to come up with six-minute abs than you are. Um, so you always want to be playing in um, greenfield opportunities, in white space on the competitive landscape. So that's the second element. And the third element is timing. Um, and this is one that's very difficult. It's usually not, not under your control. Um, but you don't want to be too late to the market, obviously, because then you've missed your window of opportunity. If you came up today with a, uh, a new device that makes... Uh, Sound quality on uh, landline handsets better. You're going to have clear as, as day reception in your handset. That's probably not a great idea because landlines are going the way of the dinosaurs. They're not going to be with us uh, for very long. But you also don't want to be too early to the market. Uh, if you came up with an idea to have an electric vehicle charger that charges the, the battery to full capacity in five minutes versus the 20 minutes that a Tesla supercharger takes today or the two hours that it takes you to do in a level two charger at home, but you came up with that idea 15 years ago, uh, that is not a great idea because there weren't that many EVs on the market that would make use of it. And by the time the market arrived, you would have probably exhausted all your funding runway and you would be dead in the water. So those are the three elements. I mean, I think that's really helpful to think about our ideas in those ways and, and, and how the, those can move forward. Um, Brandon, you, you, you said you spent some time in D.C. You founded a startup here. What should, you know, we, we've made some progress here. We have a great foundation in our ecosystem. But what should we be doing in Memphis to continue to cultivate a startup ecosystem that is, uh, that is cranking out more, more great ideas and more startups like the, those who are on, the, on our panel today? I think it really starts with exposure. Um, there's, a, there's a joke me and my dad have, and there's a story we have where when I was in the seventh grade, I was pretty good at science and math, and he was like, Brandon, you should be a chemical engineer because chemical engineers make the most coming out of college right now, which at the time was $50,000. And I turned to my dad, and I was like, Alan Iverson just got paid $100 million, and he doesn't even practice. Like, <laughs> you want me to do this for $50,000? You know, it was like we, this going back and forth, but... My second investment at Ridgeline was actually in a guy who was a chemical engineer who started a chemicals marketplace that's digital. And honestly, he's probably going to be a billionaire at the rate he's going. And so I told him, I was like, your pitch wasn't good. Like, you should have pitched me like if you're a chemical engineer, you could build something that's going to be worth $100 million, a billion dollars. And I think most there's so much talent in our community. There's so much grit. But a lot of times, we don't even get exposed to what that even looks like. Like, I, I saw an engineer who... This guy went to MIT, like was an electrical engineer at Stanford, sold a company for like $100 million. Now he's starting another company that reduces like the, the, the energy requirements for telecom towers by 50%. And he, honestly, he looks like me. I had no idea there were people like that 
when I was in the seventh, eighth grade, that would have given me something to aim for. Because I think we have people in our community who we are ambitious. We do want to win big. We do want to live great lives, but we're not exposed to the pathway to get there. So I think exposure is one. I think two, obviously like funding matters, which is part of the reason we're here. Like, are we giving our entrepreneurs the resources? And also we invest in founders across the world. So it's a priority for us to bring those founders to Memphis to expose our homegrown founders to what, what is the world-class level look like? You know, what should you be aiming for? What should you be aspiring for? And I think, you know, understanding venture sometimes is broader than most people understand. We were just talking about this. There's actually a lot of venture back companies that make consumer packaged goods, right? I don't know if you heard about Globar or like certain retail stores. Are there opportunities like that for Memphians who, maybe it's not a software company, but this is so innovative. This is so breakthrough that this could be a nine-figure business or a billion-dollar company. So I think construing venture capital broadly, um, obviously giving people the funding, but I think more importantly from the youngest ages, giving our citizens exposure to what it looks like. And also I will say this because a lot of entrepreneurs talk about this. There are not a lot of investors in Memphis who've been conditioned to invest in a startup. Understanding that, you know, yeah, it's going to cost you $25,000, $50,000 to participate in this family and friends. You're not going to, you shouldn't expect returns for seven to 10 years. That's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people who are used to investing and getting their returns a year later, two years later. But while obviously, like, you want to be risk averse, we're hurting our city if we don't cultivate the right type of angel network. And that's why it's important for Memphis based companies to be successful because the best angel investors are former tech entrepreneurs who were extremely successful, right? So having Erica be successful is going to create more angel investors in Memphis and just condition the community more to what does it look like to build a startup, to raise money, but also to invest in startups um, from an angel perspective. Thank you. Um, Erica, you know, talking about national connections, you've been invited as a, a thought leader to several national initiatives and, and programs, including Google Black Founders Exchange. How has your experience in Memphis starting a business here compared to some of your fellow participants? And, and what, what has it been like to, to start a business here? Kind of, you know, piggybacking on what Brandon just said. Yeah, it's it's actually, it was actually a funny story. When we, um, I was selected to be a part of Google Black Founders Exchange back in 2018. And during one of our in-person meetings, all of the founders, there were 10 of us, we were all sharing our entrepreneurship stories of support, advisors, building. And I started talking about Epicenter and saying, yeah, yeah, we have this really cool organization. It's called Epicenter. They support all types of uh, companies, whether it's a brick and mortar restaurant, all the way through a venture-backed tech startup, everything from mentorship through capital, uh, introductions to potential customers. And then I just saw all, everybody's like eyes glaze over. And these were entrepreneurs from New York, from San Francisco, from Boston, uh, black entrepreneurs. And they were like, we don't have an, an epicenter in our city. And I was like, you don't? You know, I assumed that everybody had an epicenter or epicenter-like organization. Um, I spent all of my career before this in healthcare. I knew nothing about entrepreneurship. Uh, and so once I started the company and I expressed, you know, my interest in, in, in growing the company and the first place that I went was Epicenter. 
And so um, it was just interesting to see that the type of support that I was getting and that we had available in Memphis was not available to a lot of these other entrepreneurs. And not only that, most of these cities uh, like New York, et cetera, are very saturated, extremely saturated. Um, and so it was it was it was very eye opening. Um, and like I said, I I had, I didn't know what the lack of access to capital looked like back then. I was very naive. Uh, I guess ignorance is bliss, uh, which is probably why I kept going because I didn't know. Um, and I'm thankful because today we've raised over two and a half million dollars for our, our initial seed round. And I will say that as a, as a solo black female founder, there are very few of us. And when I say very few, black women raise less than the, num the zeros don't even matter, but it's like 0.0004% of venture capital, let alone as a solo black female founder, it's even fewer than that. And so um, we have something very special here in Memphis uh, that does not exist in other cities, and we should be proud of that, and we should talk about that more and highlight that more. Well, I appreciate that. I didn't know, I didn't know that story, so I appreciate that. Um, I, I think, um, Suzanne, you know, can, can you add to that? I mean. Sure. What has it been I was just like? going to oh, add yeah. on to Go that. <laughs> Even if you hadn't asked me. Uh, um, it's, it's related to the why Memphis uh, question. And, you know, some of what I talked about earlier and what Brandon talked about are some of the um, unique things to Memphis that are really attractive in terms of investment with supply chain, with medical devices, and so on. Another thing that's attractive, as uh, Erica just said, is that there is less competition here. Uh, when alchemists set out to build the first uh, US-based hub outside of the Bay Area, we could have gone anywhere. Um, but does it make sense for us to go into a place like Boston and butt heads with uh, Y Combinator, which was founded there, or Mass Challenge, which is based there? Um, or does it make sense to go to a place where we would be the only game in town? So that is part of the reason why we are here. To There is a lot of... Um, talent here. Like I said, ideas are everywhere. So we like to fish in a, in a big pond where we're the only ones with a, with a net. Thank you. Suzanne, what, what about your experience in, in starting a company here, your team? What, what, have, what have you found uh, both as opportunities and challenges? Uh, so recruiting has been a little difficult because when you hear, you know, tech startup, you think, uh, Silicon Valley in Boston. And so I would say the people that we have like genuinely care about the work and are here because they believe in the vision and they care about helping humans with this type of work and making a robot that can do the job. And they love working. And I mean, that kind of environment is contagious. And so it's, um, it's really great to be surrounded by a group that's so passionate about the work. And I think because we're here, um, it was easier to kind of weed that out. It wasn't like, well, I'll go there and then find a job. Um, it's a really great team. It was a little bit more difficult to find. And then as far as being here, like having Epicenter um, in Launch Tennessee that's in Nashville and also the Memphis Chamber, um, everybody's been, like, the support, like, you know, even if it's just like, you know, how can I help you or let me hear about what you're doing, and that's great, like, is is wonderful because there are so many days when it's like, what, you know, you hear no so much or like you face challenges. So having that level of support really goes a long way. And it's, I, I think that is very unique to Memphis. 
I, I agree. Um, we have a couple minutes left uh, before we get to to questions, and so just as a final question, just for everyone, I have some I have some thoughts about this too. But we have a wonderful, engaged. Uh, leadership community, business community, nonprofit community in our audience today. What what can they do to support the ecosystem, to support stars? What do you want them to know about engaging in this part of our economy, and and what what actions can they take home today? I, mean, I think there's a role for for everybody. Um, one, if you're someone that is of wealth and of means, you should become an angel investor. You should try to seek out Memphis-based startups mentor our founders and under, you know, try to condition your mind of what does it look like to be an angel investor in a tech company and support them that way. Um, for corporations, and we talked about this earlier, we talked about the value for startups and enterprises, but there's actually a huge value for enterprises working with startups. Um, a lot of people have probably talked about the concept of digital transformation, which I'm sure if you work in any corporation, you've heard those buzzwords. But what that really means is that Every enterprise is kind of becoming a software company. Every enterprise is becoming a data company. And your inability to compete in those sectors will hurt you. I mean, you think about Amazon. They were selling books 20 years ago. Now they're almost a competitor to FedEx because they have this data and tech foundation that allows them to kind of jump from lane to lane, right? And so I think for if you're an enterprise, work with a startup. If, you know, if you're someone who has the means, invest in a startup. And I think, you know, if you're someone who's even remotely curious about starting a company or having a startup, you need to go hunt down Jessica. I hate to put you on blast like that, but hunt her down. Call her. Find her. Find him. Hunt him down, right? Just find people that can give you the information, that can mentor you and help you learn about, you know, venture capital, startup ecosystems so you can one day, you know, be like Erica and have your own company where you've raised, you know, a couple million dollars in venture funding because it's, it's possible. Right, but I think we all have to get involved and we all have to support each other. And, and the one thing Memphis has, and why I was happy to leave DC and come back home, is that we do have community here. And so how can we create more community around supporting entrepreneurs, embracing the risk of starting a tech company, but also understanding that it can bring prosperity to Memphis and making sure that their prosperity is shared across the community. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I'll, I'll add yeah. to that. Um, Echoing what uh, Brandon said, I think investing in the community is a great way to go. And I'll say two things that admittedly are self-serving. Um, I'll be upfront about that. Um, angel investing uh, is risky, just so that you know. Not, it's not for everybody. If you want to um, mitigate some of that risk, consider putting the money into uh, a venture fund uh, that will handle those risks for you or do a better job of vetting companies or into an accelerator like Alchemist. And the second thing, if you have expertise that you think is valuable to entrepreneurs, consider giving back by becoming a mentor or a coach uh, to some of these early stage startups and teaching them uh, based on your experience. And I am actively soliciting such people to add to our network because as we bring in Memphis-based companies into the accelerator, this is a, uh, I want to build a cadre of experts who will be able to guide these companies and make them successful. Any parting thoughts on that question or we can yeah. move to Q&A, I think. Yes, okay, so are we going to do a mic pass? Okay, we've got the mic in the back. So if you have a question for any of these panelists, 
Um, just raise your hand and Jamie will bring you the microphone. Hello, my name is Kareem DeSilva. I'm the founder of Traffic Sense. So my question, or I guess, could you leave some, um, give some advice on uh, how, what is the effective way to finding product market fit with, with limited resources? Like how could we, you know, what are some ways to measure product market fit and um, how could we do that? How can we go to market as much as possible with, without raising tons of capital? Bootstrapping is, is technically what the uh, the term is is usually um, that folks use when they're basically trying to run a startup without any you know, investable capital. And if you're an engineer, it's a lot easier to bootstrap because you yourself can build the technology. If you can recruit other te other engineers or someone else that can do sales, right? I mean, you build the team, people have buy-in, they have some equity, and you can generate revenue fast enough. It is possible to bootstrap. Um, I think just understanding where you add value in that chain and who's going to be your customer is really the most important thing. Like you almost have to shift your mindset from thinking about investment, thinking about raising to who are going to be those first customers, what are you going to learn from those first customers that are going to allow you to get six customers, that's going to allow you to get to ten customers, and then um, and grow from there. And I think, you know, as someone who's worked in political tech, which is selling products to political campaigns, try to work with customers who do have money because it is a lot easier to, you know, be a B2B startup working with a well-funded corporate or well-funded customer as opposed to a customer that's going to nickel and dime you. Because the problem is you do have to make a certain amount of money if you are going to bootstrap because that becomes your source of income essentially. And so I think finding the right customers, understanding you know, what their value proposition is and how they're going to use it. And I think, you know, we don't invest in technology. We invest in companies. So you can have a breakthrough technology, but, like, you know, how is that guy in their corporation who is bombarded with emails, already has 10 software platforms to use, what is the value add that you're bringing that's going to make him stop whatever current workflow he has and integrate that technology? And so... If you're going to bootstrap, I would say you probably need to do 50 to 100 customer interviews to really understand where the pain points are. So when you do build your product or you are doing it yourself, you at least know exactly you know, who you're building it for and why. Because trying to figure that out after you've actually built it, you're going to need to raise money because it's going to take you a while, take you a while to generate the revenues that would allow you to live comfortably um, while bootstrapping that business. And I just wanted to add something. Uh, a lot of founders also think that product market fit means building a product and then going out to see if people want it. And that is not the way to go about it at all. Uh, the first things that you have to think about to get to product market fit are, does somebody need this and will somebody pay for this? And then once you get there, then you can start thinking about what your actual tool or software will look like. And also keeping in mind that having product market fit doesn't necessarily mean having a fully fleshed out product. I also see a lot of founders go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars building software, and you don't have to do that. You may be able to find something that already exists on the market, a Google form, an Excel spreadsheet, or whatever it is, is your... the. Uh, innovating the process is more of the product than the actual product, if that makes sense. So that's just uh, something that I wanted to add. I'll add one more part to that because that was really good. Um, uh, ben, who's one of our partners, says this is that you'll know when you have product market fit because you'll be drowning in demand. 
Like you will not be able to serve as many customers as you have because you have found a place in the market and it's critical and you serve them. So like product market fit in some ways, like it finds you, like you should have so much demand. And if you don't have that level of demand or growth, you haven't got there. And you know, there are plenty of startups who raise a lot of money without, before being a product market fit. And a lot of times it doesn't go well, but I think bootstrapping until you get to product market fit and then raising, it's actually the smartest thing you could do as an entrepreneur. Cause you're going to be able to, retain a lot more equity that way, increase your leverage. But like you said, it's like talking to customers before you build, understanding who they are as you build is much more important. And you'll know when you hit product market fit, you won't, like I said, you'll be drowning in demand. And I'd like to echo what Brandon said about talk to 50 to 100 customers, because you may talk to 10 who are just like, nobody wants that, um, but you, you need to have a, a large sample size because you hear no a lot more than you hear, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So I've worked at a few Silicon Valley-based startups, and one of the first questions I always get was, oh, so what programming languages do you write? I can't do anything past a single string of SQL. Can't write a single programming language at all. So how do you show people that to, you can work in startups and you can work at tech companies without actually knowing programming languages? And how do you, you know, show those, give those jobs higher visibility so people who might have accounting backgrounds or education backgrounds or supply chain logistics backgrounds can take what they know there and transfer those same skills to a startup that doesn't necessarily fall within the realm of being able to be like a front-end or back-end developer like UX, UI person. Well, I can take a crack at this. Um, I'm assuming you're asking about getting a job in a Silicon Valley or high-tech company, but not as a programmer, not as a coder, because getting a, program, a job as a programmer without knowing programming, that's a little hard to do. I don't think that that's doable. Um, but the thing to realize is there are a ton of jobs, at a, even at early stage companies, that have nothing to do with coding. Um, the core team that comes up with a product um, does certainly need to have some technical skills, um, but there are plenty of people in the marketing department who have never written and will never write a line of code in their life, but they are just as critical to the success of the company because they are experts at copywriting, at storytelling, at putting together the message that will resonate with investors and with prospects. So there's certainly a whole, a very broad range of jobs that have nothing to do uh, with programming at high-tech companies. And I'll add, I think there are two critical skills you need to start a startup. You need engineering and you need sales. Who is going to sell? And I think people, we often just accept, oh, it's going to be a great product. I built it. It's going to sell. That rarely actually happens. How do you go to market? How do you sell? Who are you selling to? And I, what I love to see is someone from a business perspective who understands the market and how to sell and an amazing engineer because that's a winning team. So I would say if you want to get a job at an early stage startup, learn the market that they operate in, learn their domain, and learn how to sell really well because that is a valuable skill. Anyone have an, another question? Hi. Um, I have a question that's uh, sort of similar theme, but kind of inverted. It's almost more how to get people inspired and excited about programming and very technical skills, but more specifically just innovation um, kind of related skills in general. Um, 
and specifically kids, high schoolers, young adults. And I just wondered if you had anything to say on, uh, especially um, Brandon, you, because you were talking about your dad's self. Um, and it, it reminded me of, you know, my own, you know, attempt to tell high schoolers like, oh, like this is entry level salary. And they're like, well, have you seen the salary of an anesthesiologist? And, you know, I didn't have an answer right at the, at the get go, but I was like, well, that takes 10 years. Um, and so, any, I don't know, suggestions or ideas or experiences that any of you have um, seen of that really motivates people to um, become invested in the innovation of their city and in technical skills that could really be a part of that would be great to hear. I think high school might be, I don't want to say it's too late, but <laughs> <laughs> I think we should start earlier than that because I think, you know, as the younger you go, there's just an awe you have of technology. I was actually at um, Code Crew with Mecca probably two, three months ago, and he was showing how even with first graders, they're helping them you know, build robotics. And I actually remember in sixth grade, I did a robotics camp, and I still remember it, and it made me excited about technology. So I think how do we kind of foster that awe and wonder early, right? Because I think by the time you're in high school, those hormones have hit you, it's a lot going on. I don't know if that's the best route, but I think you know, introducing it to kids early. And I think, like you said, too, like, we always start with, like, entry-level positions, but sometimes, like, just showing people that it is possible to, like, you know, hit it big to make it. Like, how many folks were early-stage employees and became millionaires from that, right? So I think just exposing folks to kind of the range of success um, as, long, as, a, as, as long with getting people, getting to kids early, I think are two big things I would say could help. Yeah, and just from an ecosystem perspective, I'd say that, and, and I, I can't see everyone in the audience, so you may be here, but there are, you mentioned Code Crew. There are several youth, you know, entrepreneurial organizations that are not only working to make this, you know, ma inspire kids, but also working together to align what that pipeline looks like. So from junior achievement to Light Memphis, which is high school, um, some of the universities and then Code Crew are aligning together to, to make sure that that's happening at a much earlier age. Um, and agree, I think, you know, as a, as a mom of a middle schooler in an elementary school, I mean, they're talking about, you know, this is this is the time we need to, we need to inspire and tell these stories. So I, is that do we have any more time? I think we're out of time, unfortunately. And so we'll wrap up in, in that note. But just want to thank the panel so much for sharing your innovation, your stories. And thank you so much for being here. And we'll turn it over to Kevin. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Woods, market president for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee and proud trustee of New Memphis. Please, another round of applause for our amazing panelists. Once again, my colleagues and I from Blue Cross are proud to be here to represent Blue Cross Blue Shield and to join First Horizons Foundation and Duncan Williams Asset Management uh, as a sponsor of Celebrate What's Right. At Blue Cross, we know how important it is to support small businesses as well as women and minority-owned companies through our supplier diversity programs. As a Tennessee company with over 6,000 employees statewide, over 400 right here in the Memphis market, we get exactly why it's important to, to invest in great companies like you heard from today. In 2022 alone, Blue Cross spent more than $100 million with diverse suppliers, many of whom are, are small businesses right here in the Memphis market. Blue Cross is a workplace that fosters entrepreneurship. We value new ideas and new products, and we embrace the creativity to help improve offerings for our members. 
One way we do this is uh, with our annual Blue Cross Hackathon. I heard a little talk about that today. Uh, this gives innovative companies the chance to pitch technology solutions uh, that can address our business needs as well as improve the health and well-being of our members. Uh, New Memphis, the work that you're doing is amazing. It helps forge this important connectivity that we have today. Just take a pause and look around this room today. This is what it's all about. This is what, how we connect great people with great ideas. And this type of connectivity is driving Memphis forward, which is why conversations like today will continue to spotlight our, pro our progress as a city. And as often we have to do at New Memphis, a small nonprofit, we do have to continue as we lift our city, we have to lift small organizations like New Memphis, and we do so by making donations. I think there's a, a donation jar at the registration desk, and there's, you can also uh, scan the QR code as well. Uh, save the dates, May 16th, I think is our next Celebrate What's Right. Uh, be hard to top the conversation we had today, but we're definitely going to give it a try. And then also, I think there's a survey that should be up on the screen as well if you want to survey uh, the outcome from today's presentation. Again, thank you for coming out, and let's continue to celebrate what's great about Memphis. Thank you. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.